I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 10 through 31. And over the course of this series, I mentioned this last week, we're going to read bigger chunks. There are certainly different ways to go through a book. There's a lot of sentences or verses that you could spend 40 minutes unpacking. But we're going to take bigger chunks and hopefully catch the, the flow of the whole letter of 1 Corinthians. It can be easy to get lost if you start looking at the minutia. But we're reminded that these were um, letters were meant to be written as one. So we don't want to lose the flow of it, so we're going to take big chunks, and this is certainly a bigger chunk this morning, verses 10 through 31. I'm reading out of the ESV to match the journals that we have that are available in the resource table. Verses 10 through 31. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
you can uh, do this by show of hands if you want, but how many of you feel that our nation is very divided right now? And all the hands go up. I think we all feel that to some extent. Our culture is one of division and quarreling. Uh, I'm not an expert on such things, but it it seems to me that so much of the division has to do with just the nature of our public discourse. Uh, For example, if you go online and say something very reasonable and nuanced that looks at all sides of an issue, you will not get much response. And that won't generate much discussion. But if you go online and say something extreme and crazy, you're going to get the other side responding to that, saying, how dare they say that? And then they feel uh, agitated, and they have to respond to that crazy thing somebody said, and then they have to respond to that, and then you have this self-feeding cycle of stupid and crazy that goes on that further divides people and pushes people to camps on either side in extremes instead of reasoning and coming together. And the more extreme something is said, the more response it gets and the more attention it gets. And that's what drives our views, clicks, eyeballs, whatever it may be. Seems like so much of that is happening in our culture and one wonders if a nation, a culture, can ultimately stand with that kind of divisiveness and quarreling. We wonder what damage will be done. And in that kind of culture, more importantly, you might wonder, will the church be taken down with it? Will we as Christians submit to that same spirit of divisiveness and fighting and quarreling? If we are headed in that direction, what can be done about it? Can we be salt and light? Can we be a holy, life-giving institution while fighting and quarreling with one another? How does the church avoid that? How does the church keep itself free from constant fighting and divisiveness? That's the answer that Paul seeks to provide in the next few chapters of Corinthians. These next few chapters are really almost a unit that talk about division and fighting in the church because that's what was going on in Corinth. They were separating into camps, fighting with one another, and Paul has a burden to address that, and we'll see that he's going to address it as he does with every issue. He's going to address it with the gospel. Every practical issue that the Corinthians face, Paul is going to correct it and address it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Specifically, especially here today, the cross. So as we unpack this text, I want to ask the question, how does the wisdom of the cross speak to divisions in the church? It's a simple question. How does the wisdom of the cross speak to divisions in the church? That's Paul's goal. There's divisions in the church. I'm going to speak to those divisions with the wisdom of the cross, and we'll focus on on that wisdom so that we might find a solution to the quarreling and fighting that's going on. As we go through these verses in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 31, we'll find three answers to that question. Three answers to the question of how does the wisdom of the cross speak to divisions in the church. The first answer is found in verses 10 through 17. 
Here Paul states the main concern, his appeal to the church, and then he points them in the direction of the crucified Lord Jesus Christ. So first, the wisdom of the cross unites us in our Savior. That's how it speaks to divisions. The wisdom of the cross unites us in our Savior, reminding us that we have no other master, no other Lord, no other Savior than Jesus Christ. The wisdom of the cross unites us in our Savior. Look at verse 10 again. I appeal to you, brothers, and whenever you read the New Testament, brothers, you can also include brothers and sisters. It's a generic term that means people, my, my siblings here. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So the section begins with a somber appeal from Paul. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's invoking Christ on high, he says that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you. When he says all of you agree, literally the Greek reads that you say the same thing, that you speak with the same voice, that you be united in your talk. That isn't easy for us to do as American individuals, does it? Here is it. Oh, we in our culture preach that you need to be heard. You need to have a voice. You are an individual. Don't let your voice be silenced. You have a right to speech, and you should share your truth and speak it no matter what anybody says. Like, that's the message of our culture, and that's not the message of Paul. Paul says, say the same thing. It doesn't matter if your voice is different. And Paul knows, the New Testament knows, that we don't need help speaking selfishly. That comes naturally. What Paul's getting at is, I want you guys to be united, to speak with the same voice, to agree that not everything you say has to be heard, that not every opinion you have is all that important, but that you speak with one voice. Everyone who's ever coached a sports team knows how important this is. If you're a rowing crew, you don't want a bunch of individuals. You want people rowing at the same time, in the same direction. If you're drawing up plays in football, you want everybody not to necessarily be doing the exact same thing, but to be running the same play. Because if you're all running different plays, it'll be chaos. And that's true in any team sport. You all have to be moving in the same direction. And that is true in the church as well. Paul heard there was not this harmony in Corinth. They weren't speaking with the same voice. They were disharmonied. Making up my own words here. He heard a report from Chloe's people, and we don't know whether Chloe was a, a, a person, a lady, or a place. Some people say we don't know who Chloe is, but we know that the people of Chloe 
had sent a report to Paul saying, Paul, things are in trouble. There's a lot of fighting here. There are divisions. And they seem to be centered around people and who they follow. Some people say, I'm a follower of Apollos. And you, if you know the New Testament, will understand why people would want to be a follower of Apollos. Acts 18 says that he was a gifted speaker, an eloquent speaker, knowledgeable in Scripture, fervent in spirit. He's an immediately charismatic speaker, well-educated, well-spoken. So naturally there will be people who follow Apollos and say, man, I want to be in his camp. There are others who followed Paul. They really liked the way Paul wrote and the way Paul spoke and the way he ministered, and they feel like, Paul is my guy, I'm following him. Still others followed Cephas or Peter, one of the twelve disciples, and it's possible that he made a short trip to Corinth and ministered there for a while, so he would may have gained a following. And all these people follow their different leaders and then start fighting with each other over who is the best, and it's a good thing we never do that today. Nobody says, I'm a John Piper person, and I follow him, and says, ah, Piper's too stiff for me, I like Francis Chan, I like Chuck Swindoll, I like Beth Moore, I... and then we all say who we like and who we follow. And we get really offended if somebody criticizes that leader. How dare you speak against Piper? I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Calvinist. I'm an Arminian. I'm a Mennonite. Or if you don't use labels, you say, well, I really like the way we do things here. We don't have labels. And aren't we better than all those people that do? But the point is we have this tendency to split up into camps and follow our people. You're really offended when somebody criticizes them. And Paul's speaking to that. And he ends by saying, I follow Christ. Now there's two general ways of interpreting this. There's lots of different theories people have come up with interpreting this. But there are two prominent general ways to interpret this. I'm not honestly sure which one it is. So I'll give you both options. It could be that Paul is saying and this is grammatically possible, you guys split him into camps, you follow these different people, and Paul's speaking of himself, and he says, I follow Christ. He's the head of our church. We follow him. And Paul's saying, I follow Christ, and the implication is, so should you. So it might be that Paul's speaking very directly, speaking of himself, I follow Christ. Or it could be that Paul's speaking ironically and saying, and there's some of you who say, I follow Christ. And you're invoking the name of Christ to back up your own superiority, which is the same kind of divisiveness. Saying Some of you say, well, I'm not one of those people, I'm a Christ person. And you do it in such a way that makes you special and divided from the other Christians. And he's saying, even if you do that, that's against the spirit of the church. I'm not sure which way to interpret it. I kind of like the second one because it's more sarcastic and that just appeals to me. But either way, the point is clear. Paul's saying, don't do this. Is Christ divided? No. Christ isn't divided. He's for the whole church. He unites us. And why follow people? Was Paul crucified for you? Is Paul your savior? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. That's why Paul is glad he hasn't baptized many of them. Paul says, I've baptized a few of you, Crispus, Gaius, the house of Stephanus, maybe some others, I don't know. And I love this little note from Paul saying, I'm not even sure how many people I baptize. He's not keeping score. He's not one of those pastors who goes to other pastors' conferences and asks everybody, so how many people are you running? 
his worth as a minister isn't wrapped up in that. It's not about him. In fact, if his, if his ministry of baptism would lead people to think they were followers of Paul, he'd rather not have a ministry of baptism. He's not a greedy minister. He says, that's why I'm glad I've been called to a ministry of preaching and not a ministry of baptism. It's kind of a weird thing to say. Paul's not saying he doesn't baptize. Obviously, he has and does. Nor is he saying that baptism is unimportant. What he's saying is, I don't have a baptism ministry that gains followers of me. It's, it's different than, per se, the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist did have a ministry of baptism. He preached as well. But he had a ministry of baptism gathering people to follow him. And then, when Christ came, he handed them over. So John the Baptist did have that kind of ministry. where baptized people to be his followers. But he handed them over when Christ came. And Paul's saying, Christ has already come. I don't need to have that kind of ministry that John had. Where I gain followers in my name and hand them over. Christ is already here. I can just send you straight to him. Be followers of Jesus. Not me, not any other leader. Paul knows what the church is unified around, and it's not him. And Paul also knows that whatever unifies the church will be what the church worships. So if the church is unified around a certain philosophy of schooling your children, that'll be what the church worships. And if the church is unified around a certain political party, that will be what the church worships. And Paul's reminding us that anything other than Jesus Christ is unworthy of being the center of our union as a church. So Paul says, I'm thankful I have a ministry of preaching, a ministry that points to Jesus and points you to him. It's about him and not me. And Paul says, even the way I do it is intentional. There were professional rhetoricians in the Greco-Roman world and in Corinth professional speakers who would gain following by their gifted speech and you'd pay money to hear them talk. And we'll get into this more later. Um, but certain people in Corinth might even be offended that Paul didn't take money for his speech. If that was the relationship. We're supposed to give you money. We have this relationship where you're patrons and you be our speaker and our leader and by your gifted speech you gain a following and that's just how things work. And Paul's saying, I don't do any of that. In fact, I'm going to speak simply so that the focus will be on Christ and his cross. We won't be united around the way I speak. This is wisdom from Paul, because no human words, no matter how eloquent, can save people. There is no brilliant speech you or I could come up with that would raise the dead. And that is what we are doing in Christian ministry. We are bringing people to life. We are bringing souls to God and animating people's hearts and minds to the things of the Spirit. And that cannot be done with human means. Nobody's that good. 
No TED Talk is that compelling. It takes the power and the wisdom of God and Christ crucified to raise people to life. So that will be the focus. And that will be what unites us, Paul says. The wisdom of the cross unites us in our Savior. Second, the wisdom of the cross removes trust in our wisdom. The wisdom of the cross removes trust in our wisdom. What the cross does when we look at it is it dismantles any trust we might have in our own human wisdom. It is a higher wisdom. It removes trust in our wisdom. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Well, verse 18 kind of lays out the thesis for this section. This is what this section is all about. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Paul here is contrasting the foolishness of the cross with the wisdom of the world. One seems wise to the world and seems so compelling, but ultimately it brings death. On the other, it seems foolish, but it is the wisdom of God and brings life. And Paul wants to contrast those things. And just as an aside, notice how Paul sums up the gospel message. He calls the whole gospel message in verse 18 the word of the cross. This is what Russ was talking about earlier. We we put forth the cross. It's what's behind me. The cross is at the center of the Christian life. The cross is at the center of the gospel message. Not that it's the only thing the gospel message contains. So the gospel message speaks to more than the cross. It speaks to Christ's perfect life. His incarnation, the gospel message contains the death of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, his return, the kingdom that Christ brings. All of that is entailed in the gospel message and part of the good news that we proclaim. But the center of it all is the cross. So that Paul can say, or can sum up the whole gospel message with the message of the cross. Because without the cross... None of the rest matters. Without Christ dying on our behalf and washing us clean and paying our penalty and defeating death, without any of that, there is no good news. So Paul will sum up the good news with the message of the cross. So people might wonder, how come you Christians, how can you people talk about cross so much? Even other people who proclaim Christ will say, oh, we don't want to talk about the cross too much. And it would seem that we can't talk about the cross enough.
That message of the cross will be foolish to many. Why? And Paul says it's a stumbling block, a scandal to Jews. Reason being, Jews were expecting powerful signs in their Savior King. They're, they had wisdom in their literature. They had the law. They, they had God's way of living. What they needed, what they were looking for, was signs and power and wonder to come and save them from their oppression. They were looking for some powerful king to come to attest that, that God was with them and would spare them and would establish them and establish their kingdom. So they were looking for signs. They were looking for powerful things. And this cross is a stumbling block. According to the law in Deuteronomy 21, a man was cursed if he was hanged on a tree. So this makes no sense. We're looking for a powerful, conquering king, and here Jesus is, somebody who was mocked and beaten and crucified. Those things don't fit. In fact, the cross is offensive. It's a sign of a curse to be hanged on a tree. So the Jews couldn't accept the message of the cross. Neither could Greeks. The Greeks sought after wisdom, how to live the good life. Okay, they were the TED Talk people. Show me how to live well. Give me five steps to handle my finances. Give me the best parenting tips. Give me ways to live life, how to succeed in business, in marriage, in love, in commerce, and trade, and before the courts, all of it. That's what Greeks were after, wisdom, the good life. And so when you point to somebody who was beaten and crucified and mocked, it doesn't line up. That is not the good life. The message of the cross is offensive. It was something you didn't bring up at a dinner party. Uh, if next time you're invited to a dinner party, just try bringing up something offensive and see how it goes. We're going to start today. I'd really like to talk about concentration camps and serial killers. And somebody say, who invited this person? We don't talk about that stuff in polite company. And the Greeks viewed the cross the same way. We don't talk about that. That's the bloody means of executing criminals that the Romans do. That's repulsive. It's not something we boast in or center on. I'll ask you kids, school started up. Those of you who are in school and you go to recess and you talk amongst yourselves, do you ever do the my house is better game with your friends at recess. You say, at my house, we have three TVs. Well, at my house, we have four TVs. Or at my house, we have a video game system. Well, at my house, we have three video game systems. Or at my house, we have a hamster. Well, we have a dog. And you play that game of comparing, you know, my dad is stronger than your dad, or whatever it may be. No kid ever plays that game and says, well... My house is really small. My dad doesn't make any money. We have nothing. We don't even have a car. He rides a bike to work. And, and, and in my house, we don't even have video game systems. We have to play on an abacus, and we only have a couple crayons. And no kid boasts in that, right? Nobody would boast in, well, my Savior was beaten up and mocked, and spit on, and he was, had his clothes 
ripped from him. And he was hanged on a cross with a bunch of criminals. And everybody hated him. That's my savior. My religion's better. Look how powerful my God is. He couldn't even fight back. And see how the message doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. It's not compelling. It's not powerful. And yet, to those who are called, it is the wisdom of God. Both Jews and Gentiles. To those Jews, those Greeks, to anybody who gets it. That cross, which is so despicable to others, is how God saves. He doesn't save through the wisdom of people, but the wisdom of God, which is humble sacrifice of his only son. God knows no human wisdom could ever save, so that's not how he saves people, and that's not how we come to God. Not through the most gifted people, but through the most humble Savior. And Paul says there's no greater wisdom than that. And that is the wisdom that in the end will shame everybody who trusts in their own wisdom. And Paul says from Isaiah 29:14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Everybody who trusts in their own wisdom will look on that day in the end and say, I was a fool. The wisdom of God is better. And so Paul asked, he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe or the professor of the law? Where is the debater of this age? In other words, he's saying, so what of these wise people? Who cares about them? So what? What will it matter, those who are wise, according to this Age. Where, where is the television pundit? Where is the political strategist? Where is the New York Times best-selling author? Where is the college professor? Where is the podcast host? Where is the pop star? Where is the famous actor? Where is the Instagram model in the end? Who cares what these people say? That's what Paul's saying. And if we're honest, that's really challenging. Because if we're honest, we find that we do care what some of these luminaries of our culture say. Maybe I'm the only one, maybe, maybe I'm the only one who's like this, but there are times where... Being a Christian is a little bit annoying in our culture. A little bit hard. Not that we're overtly oppressed or persecuted, really not. But it does seem like every time you listen to TV or radio or, or podcast, wherever it may be, you have people mocking your faith. And that's pretty consistent and regular. The trend of Hollywood, and I love movies, you know that about me, but the trend of Hollywood and everything that comes out is, is a message opposed to the cross. So to be a Christian means you're going to constantly rub up against the prevailing wisdom of the culture. It means that what you believe and what you hold to, what is most dear to you, you're going to have to live with people mocking it. And there's a lot of pressure in that, and it causes many to wander away because they can't stand that constant pressure of the things I hold dear, the things I believe being mocked, so finally just give in. And Paul is, here, Paul here is comforting us and assuring us. He says, so what of those people? Who are they? Where are they in the end? And there's an implicit challenge. Will you hold to the wisdom of the cross? Are you willing to be a fool? It's a great question for us because some of you are very successful. 
Some of you have been successful. Some of you have great jobs. You're doing well in the world. And you have influence over people. And the question that's being posed to you is, would you hold on to that if it meant you had to go against the cross? Or will you hold on to the cross even if those people you have influence over have influence over you, even if they think you're a fool? Will you hold on to the foolishness of the cross? What are you willing to give up? What wisdom are you willing to trust? And as Paul's talking to the church, he's reminding them, this is the wisdom that matters in the end. Not human wisdom. So, don't fight with one another over this foolish wisdom of the world that will die in the end. It will be dismantled by the cross, by a cross that should humble us. And that's Paul's point in verses 26 through 31. How does wisdom of the cross speak to divisions in the church? The third answer, the wisdom of the cross humbles us in our calling. Humbles us in our calling. Here Paul is just laying his cards out and saying you should not be so impressed with yourselves. The wisdom of the cross humbles us in our calling. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So here Paul ends with giving them a little reality check. Who were you when you were called? Were many of you influencers? Were many of you rich? Were many of you of noble birth? Were many of you wise? No, you guys are the dummies. You were the lowly. You were the unimpressive. So next time you start fighting and quarreling amongst one another and are convinced that you're right and you're the smart one in the room and those other Christians don't have it right and your, your way is the way, remember that God pulled you out of the trash. You weren't the shining diamond, you were a lump of coal. And God called you. Notice the emphasis on God's choosing by his design, by his choosing. Not your worthiness, not your loveliness, but by his choice you were called. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. This is all by God's doing. He did this work. He took you, the lowly and despised people, and made something out of you. A bunch of nothings. You can't take credit for that. And why did God do it this way? Why did God choose the lowly and despised people? So that we might not boast in it. So that in the end of time, when all look on the beautiful bride of Christ in the church, nobody will say, that was all the church is doing. Everybody will say, I can't believe God did that. In his infinite wisdom, he chose weak people to show how great his salvation is so that we might not boast of it. Some of you might golf. We'll probably have a few golfers in the room. 
when you go to golf, what kind of clubs do you want or do you choose or maybe do you dream of? You want the nicest clubs you can possibly afford that are within your budget and make sense for you. You want them fitted to you. You want them to match your height and your swing. And You might do swing tests with a professional and get them laid out and things that are just perfectly suited for you in your game. And when you watch pros, when the pros golf, what kind of clubs do they use? Nice ones. I don't know what the brands are. I'm not a golfer, but they use nice ones. I'm assuming, right? They don't use the beat-up ones from the 70s that were handed down through generations that have crooked lines in them and where the, uh, the face of them is all roughed up. They don't use beat-up clubs. Why? Because that would hinder their game. They have to use nice clubs. This is true of any sport, any athletic equipment. The pros use the nicest stuff so that they can perform at the peak. But wouldn't it be incredible... If the next Masters tournament, the person who won used beat-up old clubs made for 10-year-olds. Everybody would say, how amazing is it that that person won using those clubs? That is remarkable. And they would get all the more honor and praise and glory. They didn't even use the nicest stuff. And that's how it is with God and the church. How remarkable is it that God has made this perfect bride out of that? Just a bunch of beat-up old stuff. And yet God called it out, and God sent his son and his son, laid down his life, and died for them so that they might be washed clean and made new, these lowly people. And then they will be raised up with him in perfection and honor and glory. And all the praise goes to him for it. That's the wisdom of the cross. He says they they have everything that comes with salvation. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. All things that pertain to salvation are accomplished only because of Christ who became to us wisdom from God. And this is God's wisdom. We are saved by the humility and the cross of Jesus Christ. So, final application. Remember this when you go to fight with one another. When you're in the committee meeting with other members of the church and you think those idiots don't agree with what I'm saying, remember the cross and how much your sin cost and how sinful and wrong you were, but God loved you and called you out through his son. And when you're fighting at home in your marriage and you think you have some ounce of superiority over the other person, remember Jesus crucified for your sins. And we as a church think we've got it figured out as compared to those others down the road. Remember, we put a cross up for a reason. It reminds us that we live and are saved not by our wisdom, but by the cross of Christ and the wisdom of God. So we boast in him, not ourselves. How does the cross solve the problem of divisions in the church? How does the wisdom of the cross speak to divisions in the church? Three answers. 
unites us in our Savior, removes trust in our wisdom, and humbles us in our calling. Would you pray with me? Our Father and God, may our boast be in you and your Son, in your Spirit. Lord, teach us not to trust in our own wisdom, but to lean on your wisdom, to humbly serve and love one another, and to trust the cross of Christ. Lord, by that, may our convictions be shaped humbly. Uh, May our actions uh, be fitting of a crucified Savior. May our worship be directed appropriately. Not to us, but to you be all the glory. Amen.